Samuel chapter 4 this evening. Lord willing, we'll get through chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we'll take communion together this evening. If you remember, uh, the last time we were together, we looked at um, chapter 3, where we, we saw the How many sons and uh, how many sons were born to David in Hebron? Remember, he David began to reign in Hebron over just the the tribe of Judah. He was reigning there for uh, seven and a half years, and then we find uh, later on, as we'll see this evening, that he reigned uh, for thirty three years in Jerusalem over all of Israel, not just Judah, but all of the other tribes. And we're going to look at that happy moment uh, this evening. Um, but in chapter 3, we saw the, the sons and the wives of David. He had, uh, there in verses 2 through 5, we see the six sons and the six wives that David had. Um, and then we also see Abner, who was actually the commander of Saul's army, um, being an opportunist and desiring to bring all of Israel to David And I believe Abner knew that David would ultimately reign over all of Israel. And so after after Saul's death, and um, we're going to see tonight that, um, uh, and after his own death, (laughs) uh, we're going to see Ishbosheth, who was the uh, king really over the tribe of Israel after Saul's death, very briefly that the whole kingdom of Saul just begins to collapse. And as that happens, David's kingdom is growing stronger and stronger. And I don't think it's any mistake that we have the sons listed there in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3. And then we see the subterfuge of, of Joab as he goes and he murders Abner. Remember, Joab is the nephew of David. And so these men were related And Joab, unfortunately, had a very different heart than David. David was a very merciful, very gracious man. And we see Joab being really a... Actually, I think I misspoke there. David is a very gracious man, very compassionate. But his his nephew, Joab, was not really of the same ilk. He was not of the same heart as, as David was. And we find that he murders Abner. And he murders Abner who was on Saul's side, because Abner, if you remember, had killed Joab's youngest brother, Asahel, as Asahel was chasing Joab, this very seasoned warrior. And so Joab gets his revenge by killing Abner. And certainly that wasn't um, uh, David's heart for, for Joab to kill Abner. Joab didn't desire for this to happen. But Joab took it matters into his own hands. And, and David basically curses Joab and his father's house as a result of his and his brothers, Abishai, how they both killed this man, Abner. And then David mourns for Abner like one who is a best friend. And again, David was just a different type of guy than most people. Most people, when their enemies die, they, they rejoice, but David wasn't that kind. He, um, when Abner died, it, it wasn't a, a, a good memory for David. He would have much rather had the guy live and um, maybe come to his side or, or live and be banished or something, but certainly not to be killed. And so we see Saul's reign declining and David's is Growing, And so that leads us to chapter 4. And, and notice what it says. It says, when Saul's son, Ishbosheth, that's who Saul's son was, that he's the youngest, remember, because Saul's other three sons died in battle against the Philistines. And we read about that in 1 Samuel 31. But when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, that he was murdered, actually, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. And um, this was a very difficult thing because Abner was really the power behind the throne of Ishbosheth. And so once he died, Ishbosheth realized he really didn't have a kingdom left because 
he was his his general in a sense was murdered and Ishbosheth I'm sure was very nervous thinking that maybe he was going to be next and he was next but it wasn't because of David David uh, did not want Ishbosheth uh, to die and we'll find out tonight that uh, in fact in the next few verses that a couple of his own generals his commanders uh, are the ones who put his life out and so it says in verse 2 it says now Saul's son had two men they were captains of troops the name of the one was Baana his name means in affliction and the name of the other Rechab is his name means rider and they were the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth also was part of the tribe of Benjamin. And if we were to look at a map just a little bit, um, just a little bit northwest of Jerusalem, by a few miles, would be this place called Beeroth, and it belonged to uh, to Benjamin. And we see that, you might want to put off in the footnote of your Bible, write this reference down because you can go all the way back to Joshua and see that it did belong to Benjamin. It's uh, Joshua chapter 18, uh, verses 21 through 28. It tells us that that city belonged to the children of Benjamin. But the men of Gibeon, to which they belong, were driven out by Saul um, the scripture doesn't record for us when this happened, but the men of Beeroth were driven out during Saul's tenure as king. He drove them out, and we'll, we'll look at that soon, about some possible reasons for that. And those men of Benjamin, they fled to a town on the, um, really, the north, uh, far north west of, of Jerusalem, near the shore, actually, of the Mediterranean Sea, really in Philistine territory, these men fled to this place called Gitaim. And so um, we will look more into that as we go here. But verse 3, back in our text, it says, because the Beerothites, they fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there until this day. This place means two wine presses. That's what it means. Whenever you see the word "im," I am after a noun, it, or, or it's a plural, like uh, Nephilim or Elohim. Whenever you see "im" afterwards, uh, that is uh, denoting uh, more than one. And again, this place was right on the border of Philistine territory, uh, a town of Benjamin. But at, um, to this day, hasn't really been discovered. But notice back in our text, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, he had a son who was lame in his feet, and he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And, and this is really speaking of when Saul and his sons went to war against the Philistines. And this was during the time also when David was kind of flirting around and, and somewhat being confederate with the Philistines. And the, 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 the king of Gath, of, uh, of the Philistines, he had to tell David to leave. Uh, and the, the king of Gath, his name was Achish, he loved David, and David feigned to be fighting his battles. And he had an affinity with Achish. And as time went on, the other Philistine lords were getting a little bit concerned about David's, um, about David's allegiance to the Philistines. And, and they had every right to be because David was a Jew. <laughs> it's sort of like having a, a fox in the hen house, so to speak. And so they, they drove David down. Achish told him to leave. He says, go down to Ziklag and I'll give you a piece of land there and you and your men and your families can hang out there. And so that's exactly what David did. But it was during that time that the Philistines came against Israel and David was down in Ziklag, down in the south, and Saul and his armies are fighting up there in the valley of Jezreel, up there by Megiddo and in that area. And this is the time when Saul lost his life, when the Philistines shot him with an arrow, or arrows, and, and killed him. And also three of his other sons, uh, Jonathan, who was also David's best friend, he was killed in that battle, along with Abinadab and Melchishua. And there remained one other son, the youngest son, who wasn't in this battle, and his name was Ishbosheth. 
And we learned uh, earlier in the earlier chapters of 2 Samuel that Abner made Ishbosheth king after his father Saul had died. And so therein lies the, the plot, if you will. And notice in verse 4, it says in the second half of verse 4, it said, And his nurse, uh, Ishbosheth's, um, I'm sorry, Mephibosheth, his nurse, when he was five years old, she took him up. When she heard this news of Saul and Jonathan's death and the other brothers, she picked Mephibosheth up when he was just five years old, and she made haste to flee, and that in the process of doing so, he fell, and something happened to his legs or his ankles, and he became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. His name is also called Merib Baal, which we read about in First Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34, and also in First Chronicles 9, verse 40. And his name means idol breaker or shame destroyer. And this name is interesting because we know that the Canaanite fertility god, Baal, was changed to the Hebrew word Bosheth, which means for shame. So Ishbosheth, Mephibosheth, these are all um, Hebrew names that were based upon the Canaanite god of Baal, which means uh, for shame. Now, as we look at verse 4, and this will become apparent as we look at verse 5 and onward, this verse 4 kind of seems out of place because it tells us about this nurse holding Mephibosheth and dropping him in her haste when she heard about their death, Jonathan and Saul's death. And then we go right back into this, this thing about these men, these Rechab and Baana, these men's from uh, Beerothites, and it's almost like this verse 4, you might want to put an asterisk by it because it's kind of like a parenthesis, if you will. It's sort of like a, it's kind of getting us ready for something we're going to read a little bit later on in the book of Second Samuel. In fact, you might want to put a little asterisk next to cha- uh, verse 4 and put chapter 9 <laughs> because then, then we're going to find out exactly what David did to Mephibosheth, Saul's um, sons, or Saul's grandson, really, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. We'll look at more of that as we get going. But it seems very out of place. And then it goes right back in verse 5. Then the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Baana, notice they set out and they came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. Normally around noon, uh, men in, uh, who are working in, in, the, in the fields and uh, Israel at this time, very agricultural uh, place, obviously, they take a nap. They have a siesta from like 12 until 3 o'clock at the hottest point of the day. Why would you want to be outside in the hottest point of the day? They, they would take a nap, and then around 3 o'clock or so, they would get up and they would continue the work when the sun was down a little bit and a little more, more bearable to work. And so here we have uh, Ishbosheth, and, and he's located in this town of Mahanaim, or uh, Mahanaim, depending on how you pronounce it. It's a uh, capital, if you will, for Ishbosheth and, this, and, the, and Saul's group after Saul's death. And this town is actually along the Jabbok River, just east of the Jordan River. And uh, it's a very uh, treacherous place, a lot of mountains. A lot of ravines, deep ravines, a very good place if you're trying to hide and trying to fortify a fortress. It's, a, it's very easily uh, fortified naturally by all the uh, rocks and the, the, the cliffs and the ravines and everything. And this is where Ishbosheth was. So these two men, these Beerothites, they come in the heat of the day. And it says in verse 6 that they came there all the way into the house as though they were going to get wheat. And you can almost tell how things are degrading for Ishbosheth at this point, how the, his kingdom is falling apart, because where are his bodyguards? I mean, granted, these two men were leaders of troops under Ishbosheth, but wasn't there somebody guarding the king? Didn't they find it a little odd that they were coming in there? And how did they get into his bedroom without anybody noticing? And notice they stab him in the stomach. And then Reshab and Baana, his brother, escaped. And it makes you wonder what might have been the motive for this. What was their motive in killing 
the man that they had been serving under. Well, certainly to save their own necks and hopefully to ingratiate themselves to David, these were the kind of men we call opportunists. When the, the tide begins to turn on, on one kingdom, they see another kingdom rising, and they're thinking, we can ingratiate ourselves to David. All we've got to do is take out Ishbosheth, and that's exactly their mind frame, and that's exactly what they do. And we'll see that as we go. And we're also going to understand another possible motive was because Be'eroth, this town, it was intertwined with the lives of the Gibeonites if, who ended up being servants to Israel based on a covenant that had gone bad. You remember back in Joshua, as they were coming into the land, that the men from Gibeon had made a false covenant. They claimed to be from a far land, but what the Israelites and Joshua didn't know is that they were just from a neighboring town. God's design was to wipe them out because of their idolatrous worship. And, and so when these men who feigned to be coming from afar and looked like they'd been wearing the same clothes for weeks and certainly smelling pretty bad, they come to the, the guys in Joshua and, and they say, we're from a far land and we want to make a covenant with you. And they do. They make a covenant with them and they make them promises that they're not going to harm them. And then Joshua finds out later that they're just not too far away and they, they deceive them under a pretense and so now, because God takes these oaths very seriously, now Israel has now got a covenant with a people that God had doomed to death because of their idolatry. You can see how, and so the, these men, these Beerothites, were among the Gibeonites. They were in the same area. And also in 2 Samuel chapter 21, which is close to the end of the book, it tells us that Saul had murdered during his uh, reign as king, he murdered some of these Gibeonites. And of course, these Beerothites knew about this. They were among the same group. They kind of shared the same area. And so could it be that these men, these two men, Reshab and Baana, Maybe they are getting revenge at last. It could be. It's interesting when you think of these two brothers going after and killing Ishbosheth. When you look in the scripture, we see that there are other brothers who committed atrocities in the Bible. There's something about a brother. <laughs> because they grow up together, I often see my brother, my big brother, you know, and. Um, I know he would do anything for me. If I ever had an enemy, uh, a real grave enemy, my brother would be right there by my side. And there's something about two brothers that are blood brothers. There's a, there's a bond there, and they share the same heart, the same mind. They have the same passion, usually. And, and it's no surprise that we see these two men coming after Ishbosheth and doing it together as brothers. We saw the very same thing when um, Abner was killed, when Saul's commander was killed. Who was it that did it? The Bible tells it. It wasn't just Joab. It tells us in 2 Samuel 3 verse 30 that Joab and Abishai, his brother, they killed Abner. The two brothers, they probably hatched a plan, came up with a device to kill Abner. And what about in Genesis 34? Simeon and Levi going after the men of Shechem for Shechem, his son, raped, remember, their sister Dinah. And in retribution for that act, Simeon and Levi go and they, have, they make a, a, a promise with the men of Shechem and saying, the only way we're going to fellowship with you guys and trade and, and, and intermarry between each other is if all the males get circumcised, and so they do. And about the third day, when they're all very sore and can probably barely stand up, Levi and Simeon go in and they slaughter all the males in retribution for their sister's rape. Something about brothers. Certainly it's not all bad. <laughs> There's a lot of good things that brothers do, but in, in these few cases, uh, certainly treachery, certainly murder. But in verse 7, back in our text, it says, For when they came into the house, notice these two men, these Beerothites, Baana and um, his brother. They came into the house and he was lying on his bed and they struck him and killed him. And notice they beheaded him and they took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. So 
This is a pretty long jaunt that these men are taking. Picture a, a map, if you will, and on the east side of the Jordan River, near the Jabbok River, they kill this man, they cut his head off, and they take the head and they run through the plain going east across the Jordan River into the promised land and then going south further till they finally come to Hebron where David was located at that time. And it says in verse 8, And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. You know, I wonder what the, how their voice might have been. You know, thinking that they were doing David some great service by bringing the head of his enemy. But was he really an enemy of David? No. He, in fact, David didn't even consider Saul as an enemy. Isn't that amazing? Yet Saul was the one who was pursuing David like a lion chasing a gazelle through the African safari. David didn't see this man as an enemy. Even the man who was hunting him, he didn't see as an enemy. He loved the man. He respected him. I'm sure he didn't like what was happening. But these men, they, they didn't know the heart of David. They thought they were gonna be, this was going to be some great prize for David. Some great reward might be given them for bringing the head of Ishbosheth. Now the kingdom is yours, David. <laughs> no longer just Judah, but all the other 11 tribes. It's all yours. Look at the head. Look at the head. Sorry to be so grotesque, but after all, I am a male. You know, you can get a hold up ahead, you know. So here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who you sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. But notice David, he answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite. And I love how the Bible mentions that again, somehow to reinforce who these guys really are. And he said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. And I can almost... At this point, the, the key turns to minor. You know, these guys are happy, thinking that things are going to be good for them. They're going to get a reward. Maybe even get a, a nice place and a position in David's cabinet, perhaps, for doing such a noble deed. <laughs> and as soon as David says, as the, as the Lord lives, and the tone of David, can you imagine each word as David speaks, the stomachs of these men are sinking and sinking and sinking, thinking, oh my goodness, what did we do? We're going to get it. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life, David said, from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, and here David is recalling an event not too long ago. He says, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news to me. He says, I arrested him, and I had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would have given him a reward for his news. You know, it seems like these guys did not get the internal memo emailed to them. Or maybe it ended up in spam. I don't know. But they didn't get the memo that David's heart was not like theirs. In fact, David's heart was very different from most kings. That's what made him more worthy to be king. His mercy, his grace. He wasn't a bloodthirsty man like his nephew Joab. David was a merciful man, and that's what makes him a great king. That's what makes any man a great man. He was very merciful, very gracious, and he only meted out death when it was in battle or when it was deemed so by the law of God. But these men did not know the heart of David, and neither were they paying attention. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 1, the very first chapter of this book, it records for us that after Saul was killed, remember as Saul was dying there on Mount Gilboa, he had a fatal wound, but he, he wasn't dying. And so he goes to his armor bearer and he says, fall on your, you know, kill me. And, and, and the armor bearer said, I can't do that. And so Saul put the sword on himself and he, he falls on the sword, but he's still not dead. But he's laying there kind of lifeless but still alive, unbeknownst to his armor bearer, who realizes that his master's dead and decides, i got to go out too. So he kills himself, but yet Saul is still kind of alive, and an Amalekite comes upon him. And you remember what happens. The Amalekite finishes him off. And in fact, he brings the, the crown and the bracelet that Saul had, and he brings him to David, expecting to receive some kind of reward 
And David says, didn't you, have any, did you have a, didn't you have a problem killing the Lord's anointed? Did you have no problem doing that? What's the matter with you? And David got on his case and had him killed. It wasn't David's heart that Saul would die. Saul wasn't, or David wasn't going to touch Saul. He wasn't going to touch anybody who didn't deserve death. He was going to leave that in the hands of the Lord. He says, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go near him and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Again, just another interesting facet of David's character. And so back in verse 11 in our text, it says, How much more then? He speaks to these two men. You know, as they're standing there with the head of Ishbosheth, he says, How much more then, when wicked men have killed a righteous person, he calls Ishbosheth a righteous person, that you kill him in his own bed, in his own house. Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? <laughs> not a good idea to come to David with somebody's body. It never was. So David, verse 12, commanded his young men, and they executed him, and they cut off their hands and their feet, and they hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and they buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. And so um, it's interesting that these two men committed treachery against their own tribe, even though there was some animosity between them and the other Israelites. But in the Middle East, the cutting off of the hands and feet, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but it was a custom for those who were executed for treason. This is what they would do, and so this was what had happened to them. Let's go ahead and look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. I would encourage you as we read 2 Samuel 4 and 5 to cross-reference 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and 12. You can read a lot about some details and events that were going on at this time. Some of it is similar and some there's a, there's a few other tidbits of information that aren't recorded here for us. But if you look at 1 Chronicles 11 and 12, you'll, you'll be able to fill in some of the blanks of this. It says in verse 1, it says, Then all the tribes, after this had happened, after Ishbosheth was murdered... Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your, and your flesh. And this indeed is true, because after all, aren't all the twelve tribes, didn't they all come from Jacob, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, who came from Shem, which means that they're Semitic. Anybody who came from the line of Shem is a Semitic people, and the Jews were, who ultimately came from Adam. And so they definitely, definitely were one bone and one flesh because Judah was what David came from. And here they are, the 12 tribes, standing before him. And the fact that all Israel came to David at Hebron is a miracle, if you think of it, because of what had just happened to Joab, or what had happened to Abner as a result of Joab's hatred and as his, as his revenge. And we also see, you know, it's a miracle too because... You know, those two men come after Ishbosheth and they kill Ishbosheth. And everyone is thinking to themselves, I bet David has something to do with this. Certainly Joab, I'm cer certainly David had something to do with that, but, but David had nothing to do with it. And now that Ishbosheth's dead, there's probably rumors going around that somehow David had something to do with this, but he had nothing to do with it. And the reason I bring this up, because whenever God makes a promise, as he did concerning David, you can count on the fact that the devil will be at work to confuse. He's going to counteract the promise. He's going to try and thwart that promise, that blessing, that decree that God has made. Whenever God has something that he said he is going to do in your life too, brothers and sisters, when God has a plan for your life too, you may be surprised to know that as you fulfill that calling, whatever it is that God has called you to do, there will be a great peace, but don't um, misunderstand if there is a very great battle. 
Because oftentimes when you are in the middle of God's will, sometimes the battle can be the heaviest and the, the confusion and the spiritual warfare is at its greatest when you are on the brink of standing in the middle of God's will and you're going forward and doing what he has called you to do. Those are the times that you can have great peace and there are other times where you can feel like you're just in the bed of hell and feeling like everything is going wrong and your heart's racing and your mind is swirling in a million different places and confusion sets in, doubt sets in. And yet, you are in the center of God's will. The devil would use this issue of vengeance in Joab's heart, certainly against Abner, and also the treachery of Ishbosheth's troop commanders to try and subvert what God had, had told that he was going to do concerning David. Because God had spoken and said that he is going to have David be the king over all of Israel. He made that proclamation. We'll look at that tonight. And when God has spoken, you can bet all of hell is going to come after it and try to keep it from happening. Because if, see if the devil can somehow keep David from being king over all of Israel. The devil will have claimed that he thwarted God's promise, thwarted God's will from being done. It's kind of a fool's errand if you think of it. Because if God's will is to, to have it done, guess what? It's going to be done. But see, the devil is not as smart as God. The devil is not as powerful as God. He's a created being. So God has a great advantage over the devil because God alone is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. There's no other being in the universe, including Satan himself, that has none of those things. Those three qualities belong to God alone. His omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. No one else, no other being in the universe has those three. And wouldn't you say that that's a pretty good advantage? And so the devil only knows what God allows him to know, how frustrating it must be for him. But he knows the scriptures. The devil knows the scriptures perhaps better than you and I. He knew the promises that had been made long ago through Isaiah, through Malachi, that the Savior would come through the line of Judah. It would come specifically through the line of David. The devil knows this. And he tried everything he could to thwart that from happening, to try and keep it from happening, because then he could thwart, he, in his mind, he could thwart the will of God at that point. Ah. <laughs> but how can you play chess with the one who's already checkmated you before the game has even begun? And that is God. I'm a chess player, and I like to play chess. And usually, if you're, I don't think I'm a, a really good chess player, but um, you, you always want to be three or four moves ahead of your opponent. But God can look at the chessboard as it's already set up and go, I win. <laughs> go ahead and make your moves. I'm, I'm just telling you right now, you're checkmated. You can try the queen's gambit. You can do all the stuff that you want. I got it covered. In fact, I'll even blindfold myself. I'll turn away from the game and let you make a move, and I won't even look at the board. You can do all the moves, and I'll just tell you, move the knight to b4. Move the, the rook to, you know, a6 or whatever, you know. I'll just tell you the pieces. You move them. But guess what? I win. God always wins. He never loses. So which side are you on? What side are you on? I want to be on the side of the one who knows all things. Amen? I want to be on the side of the one who knows me and knows you more than anything. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And I'm so glad because I don't even know my own heart and God knows me. He knows the very words that I'm going to speak. He knows the words that you're going to speak tomorrow at noon. He can tell you right now if he chooses to, to tell you exactly what you're going to be thinking at noon, right on the dot. He can tell you exactly what you're going to eat tomorrow. He could tell you exactly where you're going to be tomorrow. You think you're going to be at work, but you could be dispatched to somewhere else. He knows all things, and I love him for that. But God's word stands, and nothing can thwart God's plans. Amen? Nothing can thwart God's plans. In Lamentations 3.37, what does it say? Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass? when the Lord has not commanded it. 
<laughs> no one. When the Lord commands something, it gets done. It gets done. What about in Psalm 33, verses 8 through 11? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. There is no one that can thwart the plan of God. Even the death of Abner and the death of Ishbosheth, which for all accounts, for, for all accounts, as you look at this, it doesn't look very good for David because all of David's enemies on the other side are dropping dead one by one by murder. And do you think the people of Israel are going to be excited about that? Do you think they're, going to, they're not going to be thinking that David had something to do with this? It's making it now harder for him to get into the place that God had foreordained for him to be in. Does that make sense? He's got a lot of enemies. How is this going to work out when there's all this noise going on? How can he ascend to the throne when there's all this subterfuge and all these murders? But throughout the Bible, we see Satan working against the revealed will and plan of God concerning God's plan, not only of redemption, but also for his restoration of Israel. Just really quickly, and when we look at Genesis 3.15, when it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, Satan thought to pollute the human race using the Nephilim, these fallen angels uh, interbreeding with the, 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 the daughters of men. Whatever kind of weirdness that was, there's a lot to that. Satan tries to intermingle. He tries to thwart this plan, this, 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 this death sentence, really, on Satan. Ultimately, his head would be crushed. He would be crushed by the seed of the woman. Who is that seed of the woman? It's Jesus Christ. He's ultimately victorious over Satan. But that doesn't stop Satan to try and pollute the human race, to keep Jesus from coming, to keep Jesus from doing what God had said that he was going to do. He would also seek to subvert the line through Rahab the harlot and Ruth the Moabitess and even Bathsheba, these three women who were either a, a prostitute or a woman who was a Gentile or one caught in adultery. These three women in the line of Jesus? Oh, yes. It's written for us in Matthew chapter 1. God used that, and the devil's going, oh, you can't do that. If he's the son of God, you can't have that kind of thing happening. And God goes, watch me. <laughs> watch me do it. Sit back and read it and weep. Read it and weep. And when Jesus was born, who was it that came after? Again, Satan trying to thwart the plan of God. Who was it that was coming after Jesus? He wasn't even two years old yet, and Herod the Great had ordered that all the infants from two years old and younger would all be slaughtered, hoping to catch this one who was going to be born, the Messiah, the devil working through Herod the Great to thwart the plan of God. But was God's plan thwarted? It wasn't. How can you play chess with the chess master? Impossible. Jesus said this of Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning, that he's a liar and the father of it. And Peter tells us to be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, to not let Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Just like David, we too have to be cognizant of these things of the devil trying to subvert God's plan in your life, in the lives of your brothers and sisters. But again, we need to understand that when God is moving and his will and his word is coming to fruition, there will be deception and there's going to be confusion. Back in our text, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, and this is what the children of, of Israel now are saying to David, also in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one, David, who led us Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall, be, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Well, when did God say that? 
Write these verses down, and I'll read them to you. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. This is when Samuel anointed David. Remember, what did God say? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Notice, reigning over Israel. How long are you going to mourn? How long are you going to sob in your cornflakes when I've rejected him? And yet, one who is better than him, his neighbor, David, I have anointed him to be ruler over my people, Israel. That means the whole entire people, not just Judah, but the entire nation of Israel. How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. There it is. God said that David would reign in Saul's place over all of Israel. These men of Israel are recalling now David's rightful reign over them. Because God spoke through Samuel the prophet, and it's recorded for us there. And the desire of God is always to have David reigning over all Israel. Do you realize how much was at stake here? To get David on the, on the throne and, and, and think about his progeny. Think about uh, Solomon coming after him and all the kings going down, ultimately leading to Jesus Christ. Think of all that was on the line there, all the prophecies that had to be fulfilled. And they were all contingent upon that Davidic covenant that God said that, David, through your seed, through your seed would come a king. It was all riding on David. If I was David, I'd be nervous, a nervous wreck because I'd be thinking, I'm going to mess this up. I know I'm going to mess this up because I'm going to try and do something to make all these promises come to pass. And God says, don't worry, David. Just relax. And that's the one thing I love about the, the will of God. And God's will for your life. You don't have to stress and fuss and fret about it. Just be willing. He is able to get you where he needs you to be to accomplish his will for your life. I know this because he's done it in my life. I'll be honest with you, there were times when I was frustrated and angry. I wanted God's will so bad to be done in my life. I didn't know how to get there. I didn't even know what he wanted. But I wanted it, and I didn't even know what it was yet. And I tried to somehow work out something that I didn't even know yet. And God's like, Rob, just be careful. Just rest. I'll get you there. you got many years to go, but I'm going to start and just be faithful in what you're doing right now. And don't worry about the rest. Well, I can do that. Well, I really can't do that because I'll mess that up too. But I, I, I tried, <laughs> you know. And remember, also Jonathan the Lord spoke through Jonathan as David was on the run when Saul was chasing him. There was a time that Jonathan met David in the wilderness of, uh, I believe it was the wilderness of Zin, that Jonathan met up with David to refresh him, to encourage him. And it says in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose. He went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, and notice what God spoke through Jonathan to encourage David at this very pivotal time in his life. Jonathan, God speaking through Jonathan said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of my Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be, notice, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. What an amazing thing. What an amazing encouragement. The word of God being spoken through this, this young man whom David had this great friendship with. And God used even Jonathan to say, David, David you are going to be the king of Israel. My father's the king right now, but it's not going to last. I know it's you. I know it's you. God's going to do it. Hang in there. Be encouraged. Do you need encouragement tonight? You better raise your hand. Because I need encouragement. We all need encouragement, don't we? Be an encourager. Be an encourager to people around you. Love on them and encourage them in the things of God. And, and, and hold your comments and your nasty thoughts to yourself. Take them to the Lord and, 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 say, and, and deal with it at the cross. And speak good things, kind things to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Encourage them in the, in the Lord and only speak a word of correction when the Lord has given you permission. 
Therefore, verse 3, all the leaders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. It's funny, he's been anointed three times, once by Samuel in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. He's been anointed in Hebron, Hebron to be king over Judah, and now the third time he's being anointed in Hebron over, as king over the whole thing now. And David made a covenant, and many believe that the covenant that he made was what was recorded for us in Deuteronomy 17, where God told the Israelites the, 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 the nature of a king that would rule over them, that he shouldn't multiply wives, that he shouldn't multiply horses. And yet we see David doing the exact opposite. Actually, David wasn't so bad. He had multiple wives, but a son? Oh, my goodness. Not only had 1,700 wives and 300 concubines, but he also multiplied horses to himself. But David was not to do that. But what a happy day it is in chapter 5 when all of these promises come to fruition. For David, it's been a very long, difficult, painful road. Have you had a promise of God that, that God has given you and it's taken years and perhaps even decades and finally it comes to fruition and what a joyful thing that is. I've experienced that myself. Not even knowing how to, how to, how to accomplish it. Lord, I, I can't do this. I don't even know what to do. And again, he's saying, don't worry. I can take care of it. I'm bigger than you, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad. Because left to my own devices, I would make a mess of things. And David spent years, and God was preparing him during those years. And you've heard me say this before, but oftentimes the greater the work the Lord desires to do in a man or woman, the greater the preparation that is needed. Sometimes it's years. He prepared Moses for 40 years in the desert, unlearning the 40 years of Everything he learned when he was Mr. Fancy Pants in Egypt. <laughs> but David, it says in verse 4, was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So we know that he started at 30, and he reigned for 40 years. He died when he was 70 years old. That's still pretty young. But back in those days, that was a, that was a good, good age. He lived a good long life. And notice, and the king and his men, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, and, and the Jebusites, remember, was one of those people groups that God had um, pronounced judgment against, again, because of their idolatry. So they go up to this uh, Jebus or Jerusalem, and at the time, the Jebusites, these people that God had cursed, they're living on that Temple Mount where before there was a temple. And, and so the inhabitants of the land, they spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. And so nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, I love that, he turns that around on them, <laughs> he shall be captain and chief, and therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now when you remember in the beginning, I asked for you to write down First Chronicles 11 because it gives some information that isn't recorded here because the one man who did go up that water shaft, the Gahon Spring. There's a, there's a water shaft that was inside the city. It was encased in, in, in rock, and so you can't see it from the outside, but they would, there was this shaft that they would lower down pails of, uh, and get water and bring it in, and so they were pretty much impregnable, and nobody could cut off their water supply. So they had this great advantage. And so what Joab did, it tells us in First Chronicles 11.6, that it was Joab, his nephew, he was the one who went up that water shaft. And if you go to Israel with us, you'll see that very shaft. Because Charles Warren, back in 18, uh, what was it, um, 1867, he found this shaft where David's nephew had, 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 had gotten up. And, and there's just enough room for a person to where you could probably shimmy up the thing little by little and put your feet against the wall and shimmy up and put your feet up and you could get through it that way without even a rope. And Joab got into the city, and he became captain. 
and chief. And so, that's what happened. <laughs> so why did David attack the Jebusites? It seems like it was an unprovoked attack, but it really wasn't. God had given them into the hand of Israel long ago. They were doomed to destruction, again, because of their idolatry. And it tells us that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that these were one of the seven nations that God had told the Israelites to go in and kill all of them, to get rid of all of them, to purge the land from them. It says in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, But the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. And he lists them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. And, and that's what they were supposed to do. They weren't really faithful at it. And that's partly why Israel, the nation of Israel, got in such trouble. But back in our text in verse 9, it says, Then David dwelt in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. The millow was a, um, uh, a landfill, basically. And so David rebuilt the city, and he called it Zion, which means monument or fortress. It was the city of David. So verse 10, it says, David went up went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And again, when you go to Israel today, you go to this place right to the south of the Temple Mount. In May of 2005, they discovered, just as the Bible has said, and there was excavation. We were there in March of 2005, and they were just getting started and uncovering Zion, right to the south of the Temple Mount. And it's, much of it is uncovered now, and you can actually see David's royal palace. And there's actually um, uh, there's, there's stones that they found that were, very, that, were, that were all over the place that spoke of David's dynasty, right there on the Temple Mount. I got pictures of them right here. Got a video of it, which I, I didn't have time to get it ready for you. So... Hiram, king of Tyre, him and David, and actually David's son Solomon, they had this relationship together. And Hiram would send cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And so David, verse 12, knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Does that sound like a good thing? It was very customary for kings to do that. But the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, we, we, um, we looked at it a little earlier. We referenced it. It wasn't a good idea. God didn't want them to have multiple wives it always creates problems. Didn't God create, didn't he say, and the two shall become one, not and the 24 shall become one, or the thousand shall become one? No, the two shall become one. God always meant for one man and one woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman, but a man and a woman. That was his design. He defined marriage. It's up for us to obey that command. Amen? He says, now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon is the most prominent of these, obviously. Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. And again, and these, these were different from the wives that he had in Hebron. And again, this shows how David's kingdom was growing, even though he was going about it in kind of a a disobedient way, and yet God was with him. You know, God, it wasn't God's will that he, do, he did this, but God was continually with David in spite of this. So verse 17, it says that when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. Now, David had been confederate with the Philistines, remember, with king of Achish, of Gath. David was among their army just, you know, a few years prior to this. 
And now they find out that he's king over, over all of Israel. <laughs> so now he's got a problem. Now they're all going to come after him. You double-crossing traitor. You know, you lied to us. And Achish, I can imagine, is going, David, you were like a brother. You're like a son to me. I, I loved you. I, would, I gave you, I, I would have, you know. And David all the time is playing him like a violin in that time in his life, which I'm sure David regretted. A time in David's life that he would like to erase, I'm sure. But a, very, a time that we can all relate to when we're in fear and in great strait, in a great strait, running and scared and forgetting the promises of God, forgetting that God is on the throne. And David was in that strait. For a period of time, he kind of lost his mind, lost his bearings, this man who took down Goliath and yet struggled to maintain a consistent witness. So the Philistines also went and they deployed themselves in the Valley of Rephaim. The Valley of Rephaim is just southwest of Jerusalem. And so notice, David inquired of the Lord. Underline that, because the last time we see David speaking of him inquiring of the Lord was in the second chapter, in the very uh, first verse of, of, of this book. But prior to that, the last time we heard David inquiring of the Lord was after the... Amalekites had come and taken his wives and from Ziklag and remember burned the city with fire and took all the men and all the wives and all the kids, just took them captive. And that was really the turning point in David's career when he was losing his mind and he was confederate with the Philistines. And finally, after that event in Ziklag, when the Amalekites took his family and his, his men, all of his men, they took all their families, all their wives, their kids, took them captive at that point, David says, you know what, I've had it. And in verse, chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, verse 8, it says that he inquired of the Lord, should I go and recover all that they have taken, Lord, these Amalekites? And the Lord says, yes. You go after them, and guess what, David? You're going to recover everything. You're going to recover everything. Because he inquired of the Lord. I love that. Do you inquire of the Lord often? It's important for us to inquire of the Lord. Inquire of the Lord. He knows all things. He can do things that you and I cannot do. He can do things that are impossible. When we come to the end of ourselves, that's when God begins. He can do the impossible, and he does. He does the impossible. So David, verse 20, went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. And therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. These are the, the little gods that the Philistines would worship. They would carry their gods into battle with them. And you know where they learned that from? The pagans around them? The other pagans? No, they learned it from the children of God. <laughs> they learned it from Israel, remember? In 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5, what did the Israelites do when they found the Philistines were coming? What did Saul do? They fetched the Ark of the Covenant, their most holy relic, and they brought it into battle with them, and they lost the battle, and the Philistines took the Ark from them. So what did the Philistines do? They learned a lesson. Hey, when we go to war, we're going to bring our gods and so that's exactly what happened. They left their images, their teraphim. They left them there on the field, and David and his men carried them away. And then the Philistines went up once again, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And notice, underline this, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, verse 23, and he said, and notice what God says, You shall not go up this time. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Isn't this a wonderful thing about the character of God and about inquiring of the Lord? You would think that after that first battle, and they're, they're, they're coming down the same, same way again the second time, you know, many people think, well, we'll just do what we did before and we'll become victorious. God told us to come down and take them. We'll, we'll, we'll just do it again. It'll be the battle, 2.0. We'll just do the same thing. But David inquired of the Lord, and it's good that he did because God gave him a different strategy 
Remember, God is the best general. (laughs) He knows all about psychological warfare. He knows exactly how to get the job done and fool the enemy, and that's exactly what he did. The men at West Point will study these things, these battles in Joshua and these kinds of battles because they do these in modern warfare when they're on the ground. They do these kinds of things. God says, no, David, you inquire of me, I'm going to tell you another way because this is going to be even more effective. But God, it worked before. Can't we just do the same thing? It got us the victory. God says, no, no, do it this way, David, and you'll have victory. And I love David. He didn't argue with God. You and I will argue with God. Hopefully not, but we can. We can argue with God. But David didn't argue. He submitted himself to God. Lord, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And that's a great place to be in when you just are obedient to God. Just do what he tells you to do. Don't argue with him. Don't come up with a better plan. So David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them this time, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, David, when you hear the sound. This is sort of like a little signal that God has given him. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For, when the, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, notice, as the Lord commanded him. And see, that's why, and, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer because he obeyed the Lord. He just did what the Lord told him to do. Success is always obeying the Lord. Amen? Success is obeying God, even if it doesn't look right, even if it doesn't feel right, even if everything within you is saying, go this different path, and God's saying, no, I want you to do this and you do that one thing, you are going to be successful. Because you plus God, you can accomplish anything. But when you, in your own heart, have your own will set, your own designs, you're going to be all alone, and you're going to be in deep trouble. So there's a great lesson here, obviously, right? Inquire of the Lord. Be dependent upon the Lord. And, you know, as you read the Scripture, and if... um, Gina could come up, we're going to take communion together. But, you know, as you read the scripture, folks, you know, read it with the intent of not just listening to it and thinking it's for somebody else. Read it for you. Read it for you. Say, Lord, this passage that I read today, can you bring this to life to me today? Can you create some circumstance where this will make, put life into it, Lord? And, Lord, help me to be listening and watching so that when you do these things, I will learn your word, and I will learn to be obedient to your word. How many of you want to be obedient to the Lord? We all do, don't we? Let's listen to his word. Read it and listen. Amen? Amen. And as we um, take the bread and the cup this evening, we know that we do this in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. As Jesus told his disciples as they were taking the Passover and enjoying the Passover meal that last night before he was taken and crucified. Remember, he did something that had never been done in a Passover, and that was he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he says, take it and eat it. And as we're going to see this Sunday morning, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When we believe in him and when we take him in, it's, it's more than food for us. It's the very life of God. And there's nothing magical about these wafers. There's nothing magical about this cup that we drink. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. And we do this until he returns. We remember his death until he returns by taking this. And we gladly do it because only the blood of Christ has set me free. Only the blood of Christ is able to take my sin and wash it away. Only the blood of Christ can make me whiter than snow. Amen. And so let's take the bread. And remember that same night he took the cup and he said, this is the blood, the cup of the blood of the New Testament. And a testament is something that is given when somebody has already passed away. In fact, a testament is not even in in 
legal action until after the death of the testator. And yet Jesus could say very confidently that night, hours before he would be crucified, that this is the blood of the new covenant. This is symbolic of his blood. And he said, do this as often as you can in remembrance of me. So let's partake. And I love what Jesus said that night. He said, I will drink no more of the cup until in the kingdom when I drink it anew with all of you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will all drink it and eat of it together. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, in the Middle East, it's it's very customary to one of the most intimate things in the Middle East, other than human intercourse, is eating together, sharing a meal together. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples. And he turned it around into something and reminding them of what he was going to accomplish and what those things meant to him and what they mean to us. And we do this not in some kind of rote ceremony. We do this to remember. And how could we forget, really? But yet, it does remind us of what he has done for us. Never forget the simplicity of that one sacrifice. Only Jesus could do that. And so let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, that you died for the sin of the world, and you died for each one of us, Lord, for our sins. Not only for the sins of the things that we've done in the past, but the sins that we've committed even this day, whether in thought and and, and deed or in whatever, Lord. And we know that you've forgiven us too, Lord, and help us to confess those sins as as we do them, Lord. Even for future sins, Lord, the blood of Christ has covered us. And Lord, we have the provision Lord, to call upon you, and you will never look upon them again. Lord, what greater assurance can anybody have on this earth than to know that their sins have been paid for? And that's why we do this, as often as we will. And so, Lord, we thank you for meeting with us tonight. Bless our day tomorrow, Lord, and awake us early that we might spend time with you in the morning and throughout the day, and whenever it is that we have that time just to escape the world and Hide somewhere and pray and read. Lord, change us. Continue to change us and remove any fear from our hearts as the world around us gets even scarier and weirder, Father. Help us to be the most sane, the most level-headed people on the planet because we trust in the one who knows tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And you've told us these things in advance. So we love you and we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you.